Lord, you know all things. And just as we've sung, truly our sins, they are many. Father, we confess to you our sins, whether we've committed even this week, even this morning. And Lord, we ask for your mercy towards us to forgive us of our sin. We're reminded that you have sent your son to die for in our place for our sins. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to keep your promises. God, we pray that you would cleanse us and, and sanctify us this morning through your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for that we can uh, worship you because of your mercy towards us. We who ought to simply perish before you are given grace, are shown grace, given days to live and breathe and to know and worship you. Well, Father, thank you for doing a work in our lives in saving us and sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would use your word now <clears throat> to cause us to become more like Christ, more like the kind of people you wish us to be, Grant us understanding and wisdom from your word. Help us to uh, walk out of these doors with a greater understanding of, of you and a greater love for you, a greater faith in you. Lord, help us to cast aside anything else that we may look to as our hope, as our joy, as our treasure, and help us to find our joy, our treasure, our delight in you and you alone. God, we pray that your spirit would lead us now, teach us, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters, again. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to again with uh, us to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning, Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. As we read in our call to worship, we read out of Psalm 90, and we learned that Psalm 90 is, of all the Psalms, of all the 150 Psalms, it is the only Psalm that's attributed to Moses. And many Psalms are attributed to David or, uh, the, you know, or uh, the sons of Korah. Um, but this psalm, Psalm 90, or psalm, the psalm that we read, was, is attributed to Moses alone. And you can think about Moses being the prophet of God who was, received so much revelation from God, who saw so much of God more than anyone uh, who had walked on the face of the earth at that, by that, at that time. You would think he could write about many things about God. He could write a, 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 a worship psalm, a praise psalm. He could... He could uh, Perhaps a right just of, of how God had led them and, and guided them through the wilderness, as some of the Psalms talk about. But Psalm 90 is what we call a wisdom psalm. And he writes about wisdom and particularly about the subject of death. Moses writes to us in his only psalm 
a psalm about death. He wrote, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of man. He writes about how man's life is, is like the brevity of grass here in the morning and gone and burned away by the evening. Our days, he writes, are 70 years on earth, and maybe if you're strong, 80 years. That's still true today. And whatever we do, whatever we accomplish, he writes, is but labor and sorrow. Because soon, inevitably, for all of us, our labors, our lives are gone, and we fly away. We die. Moses writes with a wisdom and understanding about death. And often, as we read Psalm 90, we, we point to the prayer part of, of the psalm. Psalm 90, when, when he prays to God, to, for God to teach us to number our days that we may present to him a, a heart of wisdom. And certainly that's an important part of his prayer. But wisdom begins all the way even back in verse 1. For wisdom begins in verse 1, remembering, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our home, our refuge, our shelter in all generations. As, Moses, as we journey here on earth for a short period of time, our home is not here. Our home is in heaven with the Lord. Every generation of man must learn to put their hope in this one who is their dwelling place. They must put their trust in him, in him alone, during their sojourn on earth. And Moses would know this, of course, because, well, he witnessed a whole generation of sojourners wandering through the wilderness with him and perishing in that wilderness. A whole generation of people who lived and died, had children, got, got married, had children, worked, labored, shepherd, shepherded the flocks, celebrated the, the holy days, and then by the end of 40 years, died. Moses probably wrote this psalm somewhere around the events of Numbers chapter 20 that we read today. In today's passage, the congregation of Israel undergoes a, a moment, a, a significant beginning, a moment of transition. It's a, a transition from one generation to the next. It's a gener it's a tr it records for us the beginnings of a, well, really the culmination of a transition where all their previous generation, all their parents, all their teachers, all their uncles and aunties have died and, or are soon to die. And we remember that that first generation, of course, they, they all were condemned to die in the wilderness because of their rebellion against the Lord at a place called Kadesh Barneum. We saw that in chapter 13 and 14 of Numbers. Instead of trusting the Lord to enter the promised land, the, peop the people believed the evil report of those ten spies, and they refused to enter the promised land. They, they didn't want to go. But now, and, and so they were cursed to wander in the wilderness. So now in the 40th year, the, pretty much all of that first generation has passed. The next generation is up. 
It's their turn to either follow in their parents' footsteps in rebellion against the Lord and not trusting the Lord, or to choose to trust in the Lord as they ought, to trust in him alone as their true dwelling place as they seek to enter the promised land. Our passage to this morning is going to serve to encourage God's people, to serve the future generation of Israel, future generations of God's people to believe and trust in the Lord throughout our journey towards our dwelling place with the Lord. It will encourage us through, the, through a, a lifetime of seeing others fail and seeing others fall, fly away in their death. And it was, it's going to teach us that we, our hope and trust must always be in the Lord our God. We're going to walk through this passage. Several things happens in this passage. Uh, but kind of the overall theme of this passage is going to be that of death. We're going to see five events, five events in this 40th year of wilderness wandering that highlight the need to trust in the Lord alone. It's written down, experienced for that first generation, but it's written down for the next generation, for that second generation, and all future generations, and for us today. And hopefully as we read this passage, we're going to, as we see these events, we're going to be reminded, even in the light of the, the, the failures, as well as the death of those, who, uh, of those significant people in Israel's life, that we need to look not to our, these significant people in our lives, but we need to look to the Lord. So hopefully it will be encouragement to you. And I know um, all of us here, are, we are on a journey. We're all sojourners. We're pilgrims. And I know that we need to be reminded to look to the Lord always. Let's uh, take a look then at event number one in this passage. Event number one is just simply highlighted in verse one. And that is when Miriam dies. When Miriam dies. Verse, verse one of chapter 20 we read, then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. Now uh, we see here uh, a mention of a specific location and a, a, and a date. Uh, they arrived at Kadesh, and they arrived in the first month. Now when is this, and what's significant about this, we we have to kind of go back a little bit. The last time in the book of Numbers that a specific month or year is mentioned was back in chapter 10, actually. This is chapter 20, so no dates have been mentioned except back in chapter 10. And chapter 10 uh, the, was when the Israelites first started off from Mount Sinai. They had, uh, they had completed all, they received the law, they completed the tabernacle, and they got, the pillar of cloud began to move forward and lead them heading towards the promised land. That was in the second year of the second month on the 20th day that that cloud was lifted up. And shortly later, of course, we read in Numbers, that in chapter 13, they ride in the wilderness of Paran at a place called Kadesh. Kadesh, that's our place here. And there they sent out the 12, sp the 12 spies who spied out land. But because of Israel's fateful decision to heed the report of those 10 spies instead of the report from Joshua and Caleb, they were cursed to wander in the wilderness the next 38 more years. So for a total of 40 years, for one year for every day that they had spied out the land. Now, in chapter 20, verse 1, we read that Israel arrives back at Kadesh. 
And so there's a significance here. They, they arrived back at the, a place where they had basically rebelled and rejected the Lord, where basically they had become cursed and turned around. And it's the first month, full circle return to this place of significant and faithful uh, decisions. Kadesh, of course, was on the border between the wilderness of Zin to the north and the wilderness of Paran to the south. But oddly, if you look at this passage, no year is mentioned. Now, of course, I'm, I'm assuming, it, I, I am uh, implying that it's the 40th year, but that's not without a reason. Um, no year is mentioned in this text because it was written in such a way that it was seemed to be, it was when the readers would have understood it to mean the 40th year. It's like how sometimes we say uh, 9-11 or September 11th. We don't need to say the year. Everybody knows the year. And so they said it was in this, it was recorded. It was the first month. Of course, for us who are so removed by time, we have cross-references. And so that helps in this case. At the end of this chapter, we're going to learn about the death of Aaron. And the death of Aaron is actually targeted and marked down with a date. Later in Numbers 33, chapter 33, verse 38, we're going to read there as, re, as there's a recounting of uh, the events of Israel that the death of Aaron took place in the 40th year on the first day of the fifth month. So that's by the end of this chapter, they arrive at the 40th year, first day, fifth month. So here, in light of that context, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, the first month would be implied then the first month of that 40th year. Just, that's just most certainly what it is, and all commentators basically agree on that. It is the final and 40th year of Israel's wandering in between a, a whole generation, everyone 20 years old and upward. Can you imagine everybody here, 20, just if I just had you raise up, everybody here is 20 years and upward, and maybe like five of us would not raise our hands. Well, all of us, basically, 20 years and up, perish in a period of 40 years. Parents, teachers, leaders, all perished, all died. Even the most prominent of their leaders, including here Miriam, Moses' sister, a prophetess, a leading woman in the congregation, she too dies. And though she was used of the Lord, we recall how she and Aaron were actually complicit in leading the congregation complaining against Israel back in Numbers chapter 12. And she was cursed with leprosy because of that. She had failed to believe in the Lord, even at that moment, who had chosen Moses to lead. So now, though, with Miriam's passing, those who had looked to her as a leader, especially probably many of the women probably looked to her as a leader because she was Moses' sister. She's more prominent in the Bible than Moses' wife. Right? Just think about that. She's significant. She's, a, she's the only woman that's really in this era that's ever mentioned, and she's died. She's, she's clearly a woman, leading woman. And so all those who had looked to her are now left to look to someone else. Who are they going to look to? Well, they were going, they're forced to look to that someone else being the Lord himself. And so that's just the first event when Miriam dies and forces the next congregation, the next generation to, to begin to look to the Lord, to trust and believe in the Lord and not in uh, their leading woman, Miriam. In the next few verses, an opportunity to do so, to trust in the Lord arises right away. And that's our second event that we find in this text, and that's when the congregation sins, or when the congregation sins. Our second event that highlights the need for God's people to trust in the Lord oh, uh, in, during our sojourn here on earth is when the congregation sins in verse 2 to 5. Let's read verse 2 to 5. There was no water for the congregation, 
and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. The irony of this moment is is great. Here Israel returns to the very place where the previous generation had grumbled and rebelled against the Lord, leading to that, their judgment. And we find Israel, about 40 years later, and they're basically repeating the same mistakes, the sins of their fathers. Now on the previous occasion, it was the fear of the giants in the land that they rebelled against the Lord. But on this occasion, it was a lack of water that they grumbled and rebelled against Moses and the Lord. But in both cases, the people were led by their fear. They feared for their lives. They didn't want to die. They didn't want to die at the hand of giants. They didn't want to die of thirst for having no water. Understandable. Water is important. But in both cases, they simply ignored or really failed to believe in the very Lord himself who was present with the congregation. The one who dwelt among them in the tabernacle. The one whom, whose presence was massive manifested in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire over the tabernacle. In fact, not only do they have the visual, visible presence of God emphasized in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes about it as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Paul writes how that the wilderness generation all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And even we, as we see in the Old Testament, references how water comes out of rocks, but Paul understands by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, understands that there was a, a true spiritual rock that was with them the whole time. And that spiritual rock was Jesus, that Jesus was with them. And ultimately, it was Jesus who had been providing water for his people throughout their whole journey. Even, as, even though for, in the Old Testament, it just records it as, a, a, as, being, as a coming out of a rock. But that rock really was a, a symbol of the true rock that was with them the whole time. God provided them with water. Christ provided them with water. As they trusted in him. And though God the Father and Christ were with them, the people were, are so caught up in their sinful grumbling that their, their thoughts have become corrupted. In verse 3, do you see how, how corrupted their thoughts are? They actually wish they had died when their brothers perished before the Lord. They're, they're actually referring to the moment when Korah and his, and his followers all perished in their rebellion against God. Basically, they said, we, we want to die like, like all those sinners died. They would have preferred to die among rebels, to be counted as a rebel and die before God, than to die of thirst, at least what they, uh, their fear of thirst. And what's more, their thoughts are so corrupt, they, they start blaming Others, and that's just what you know, we do when we grumble and complain. We, we start blaming others. He blames Moses. They blame Moses for leading them into the wilderness to die. 
<laughs> That's ironic because, of course, they had forgotten that it was because of the sin of their parents, their first generation. That's why they had been wandering in the wilderness to die. They, and ironically, they wanted a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates. But that's the exact place that the previous generation had refused to enter when given the opportunity. These people had no right to complain, just as we don't have any right to complain. Yet we see here that the sinful nature of man that persists. We see the, the whole congregation, just even the second generation, who have seen the, the, the mistakes, who have experienced the consequences of the previous generation's mistakes and sins, and yet they still continue in sin. The fact is we are all sinners, and we're all given prone to sin. And facing the same circumstances, we too are prone to these sins as well. And that goes for this church. That goes for us as a congregation. As wonderful as you uh, may, under- may think of this church body, as great as it may be, remember that we here are a church of sinners saved by grace, grace alone. There's no exceptions to this reality. And we, we understand that. that we under- and understanding that should give us humility not to, not to judge one another. Oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm in a church full of sinners. But rather, we should teach us humility and we walk along, we'll side with you that, that we are a church of sinners and we, we all need God's grace. Encourage you, we, we, we ought to love the church, we ought to be involved in the church, but never do we ought to put our trust in the church. Put your trust in Christ. Put your trust in the Lord. Believe in the Lord, not believe in the church. But when the congregation sinned, it's, it's, it's the event, it's, it's a reminder to us, reminder to us to, to not put our trust in our, the, the people of God, but put our trust in, in God himself. Now, the complaining of Israel leads to a third event, and that is we see a, the, most, the, kind of the, the most significant event in this whole passage is that is when Moses sins. When Moses, the chosen prophet of God, by scripture's attestation, a, a very humble man. He too sins. We read this in verses 6 through 13. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand And struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. 
Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Now Moses and Aaron, we see, initially respond to the complaining of Israel in their usual faithful manner. They bring it to the Lord. They show the correct response to grumbling and complaining. Seek the Lord. Ask of the Lord. Go to the Lord for help. And they approach the Lord before the tabernacle. And once again, as always, as they faithfully respond to obey God, God faithfully responds and appears before them in the pillar of cloud. And and he spoke to Moses. And he gives Moses a, a set of instructions. He instructs him to take the rod, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. And water will come forth. So Moses takes the rod of God as rod as God had commanded. He and Aaron gather the assembly, and then Moses speaks to the congregation. He strikes the rock twice, and water came forth. And everyone had enough water to drink, humans and beasts alike. Lives were saved once again. Praise the Lord, right? Great. Good news. Fantastic. No, not. Not great. In verse 12, we see, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord rebukes Moses and Aaron for not believing him because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. They had failed to treat God as holy. They had failed God to obey his word. As punishment, God then says that they would not lead the nation into the promised land. They were his chosen leaders, but God said that they would not enter the promised land. And as and we understand the significance of Moses' impact upon the nation, particularly as God's chosen prophet, he had a far greater impact upon the nation when he sins, and therefore he is held to a greater accountability. What did he do wrong? At first reading, it seemed like what he did wasn't that bad at all. Back in Exodus chapter 17, if you recall, a similar situation had arisen when early on in the wandering in the wilderness, and, there, and they, the people also had no water, and they complained to the Lord, and complained to Moses, and Moses went to the Lord, and God then gave Moses instructions to take his staff, strike the rock, and water would come forth. And Moses took the staff, he struck the rock, and water came forth. So it appears that Moses did what he had simply done in the past. That he was just doing what he had learned by experience, what had worked before. But the significant point is that that is not what God asked him to do now. God did not ask him to speak to the congregation, and then to strike the rock once, not once, or not even twice. Instead of the speaking of the rock, he speaks to the people first, and and, and even in his words to the people, you could sense his frustration. He, He calls them rebels. Ironically, later on, God's going to, when he's in his words to Aaron, he's going to tell that Aaron... The reason why Aaron is not going to die is because he 
had rebelled against the Lord. And certainly it's true that Israelites were rebels. They were the ones who were complaining, right? So he was speaking truth, but maybe not in love. It seems that more like he's acting out of frustration because he draws attention. He says, shall we bring forth water for you? Shall we, that is he and Aaron. And they're, they're acting together, by the way, here, because both are get judged by, by the Lord for this. Shall we bring water for you? Instead of pointing to the, them to the Lord who promised to provide water, he pointed to himself, to Aaron. And in further to speak to, to further his sin, instead of speaking to the rock so that God would be glorified, he strikes the rock so that everybody knows it's because of his action. It's his action, his hard work, twice even, that the water comes to God's people. See, in that act, Moses simply had failed to believe the Lord, to trust the Lord. He did not believe God's word was sufficient. He did not want to obey God. And instead of obeying the Lord's command, he followed after his own, his will, own will. And in a sense, his own experience. He based himself off his own experience. Sometimes there's wisdom and experience, but more important to follow God's word than our own experience. And Moses was wrong. He misunderstood. He did not understand why God was doing what he did. For God has a purpose in all his instructions. God's not just, oh, you know, it's just by merely, you know, okay, this time, yeah, uh, just go ahead and strike the rock. Uh, and this time, I want you just to just speak to the rock. You know, like, it doesn't really matter, but just, just do this, do that. God is not a God who is that purposeless. God does all things for, for his for a particular purpose, for a particular glory. In Exodus 17, when he, God had told Moses to take the rod, the very rod, he said, and in that description, he tells him, take the rod that Moses had used to strike the Nile, and it turned it to blood. It was, it was a rod, by re- that reference, it was a, it's a reminder that this rod was, was, the, was symbolic of God's miraculous deliverance of, of Israel out of Egypt. See, in striking the rock with that, that rod in that, in that way, God was telling Israel that the Lord who delivered them from Egypt is the one who will provide for them water. There's that, that purpose in that. But here in Numbers chapter 20, God him told, told him to take the rod. There's an there's a article there. An article there is just, uh, and so the, the rod. And from verse 9, we learn that it was the rod that was before the Lord. Do you remember what rod, or, or this, by the way, it can be translated as staff. Some of your translations probably have staff. What was the rod that was before the Lord? What, what is this referring to? It's referring to Aaron's rod, right? Aaron's rod that was placed before the Lord after it had, when, when after the rebellion of God's people, God said, take the rods of, the, of Aaron, take the rods of the leaders of all the other 12 tribes, and then put them before me overnight and see what happens. And of course, Aaron's rod budded and not only grew and budded and leaved and flowered, it produced almond fruit. And when all the other leaders saw that their rods were still dead and barren, they acknowledged that God had chosen Aaron. And God told Moses and Aaron to put that rod back before him, before the, the testimony of the Lord that is in the, before the Ark of the Covenant, as a, as a what? As a sign. It was to be as a sign for Israel to warn against all rebels. 
It was designed to be a sign to, and for rebels to stop their grumbling before the Lord. And that's exactly what Israel was doing now, grumbling before the Lord, rebelling against God. And God wanted them, God told Moses and Aaron to bring out the rod that is meant to be a reminder to them that they need to stop their grumbling, <laughs> end their grumbling, or they were faced to be, or they, for they were just like uh, the rebels of Korah and, uh, and the nation in that mo- at that time. God wanted them to be reminded and to have to repent of the rebellious grumbling by just simply looking to this rod. But by striking the rock with his rod, whether it's Moses' rod or whether it's this particular rod that uh, they had budded, Moses stole God's glory in providing the water. He made it about himself, his own action, his own efforts. And though the Lord graciously provides water still, Moses, of course, is judged for his sin because it was done. It was a sin before all. And so God, Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land. We see here in this instance that though Moses was a humble and godly prophet, he was not a sinless man. And, you know, when we're young, we don't realize it, but no leader is. No leader is. None of us are without sin. Without Moses, the next generation would learn, would have to, would be compelled to learn to trust in the Lord to lead and guide them into the promised land. As Israel heads towards the promised land, they now face, they face a fourth, a fourth event that also encouraged them to, to trust in the Lord God alone. And that is in verses 14 to 21, when Edom opposes. When Edom opposes. We read in verse 14 to 21, these words. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left, until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now, the main kind of people here are, we're introduced to are the Edomites. The Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, if you recall. Um, Isaac had twin sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. 
and uh, Jacob, of course, become was God's chosen through whom the the blessings would come. Uh, and Esau, though he was older, uh, was was not the chosen one. He gave a sowed his birthright and uh, for a bowl of stew, even. But uh, Esau is essentially brothers with Israel. They're they're, they're relatives. They're related. They're, they're, that's why Israel even Moses even appeals to the king of Edom as as his, their brother. He asked for permission to, to use the king's highway. The king's highway was a major trade route that traveled from the, uh, at its southern tip from the, the Gulf of Aqaba all the way up to, uh, to Damascus in Syria. So it was a major trade route, very common for uh, trade caravans to travel through. And he appeals to a lot, be a lot. In fact, if you go to Israel, I hear that the king's highway is still there, nice freeway there, or something like that. But in his request, he reminds the king that he appeals to the fact that they're family. He says, remember, I'm your brother. Secondly, he further recalls and asks and appeals to his compassion, their mercy. He reminds the, the king of Edom about all, all their difficulties that they faced while in Egypt and how the Lord had delivered them. And though Moses appealed to their family relation as well as to their compassion, the king of Edom, we see, refuses and even when Moses appealed, the Edom refused again and came out with military force and to oppose the Israelites. And so Israel, not, not wanting an unnecessary war with their relatives, Israel turned away. Israel here in this, in this event is reminded that they were not or cannot depend on family to enter the promised land. They couldn't defend, depend upon these Edomites to bring them into the promised land, though they're relatives even. If they're going to enter the promised land, it will be through depending and believing in the Lord alone. Now, certainly, God gives us family and to support and to help us throughout our lives. But even among our families, they will at times fail us. Sometimes, especially when it comes to the Christian life, especially if our families are not believers, it is they who will even oppose us in our journeys. And God wants us, the people of God, to learn to depend upon him alone. Now, the one last event that we focus on this morning that highlights our need to trust in the Lord alone, and that is when Aaron dies, when Aaron dies. Now, Miriam has died. Moses is condemned to die. And now it is Aaron's turn to die. 22 and 29. Now, when they set out from Kadesh... The sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, so Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Aaron's death takes place on a mountain called Mount Hor. 
It's, uh, uh, scholars are divided on where it is exactly. They don't know exactly, but somewhere in the wilderness is for sure uh, along the borders of Edom. And Aaron's death that takes place here involves a ceremony where the, basically the high priestly office that he had held is passed on to his son, Eliezer. God reminds Aaron, first of all, that he would not enter the promised land because of his rebellion at Meribah, because he didn't obey God's command. He did not believe the Lord. And God instructs Moses now to take Aaron and take Aaron's son, Eliezer, his oldest living son still, at this point, to go up to the mountain. And Moses now follows the Lord's command. And this was done in the sight of all the congregation. It was a public ceremony. It was done. Everyone could look up the mountain and see it. Moses went up with Aaron and Eliezer. And then Moses came down with Eliezer alone. Wearing the garments of the high priest. So Aaron died on the mountain top. And by transferring the garments, it was a transfer of the, the role, the office of the high priest to Eleazar. And when the congregation saw that Aaron had died, they mourned for him for 30 days. And 30 days, they mourn is, a, is you know, it's a significant amount of time. It's uh, normally uh, people would may, uh, would commonly may mourn for seven days or a period of days, no matter of days, but 30 days is a significant amount of time. Because Aaron had a significant role in the life of the nation of Israel. He was their nation's first high priest, right? He was the one whom was, that God had chosen to be their priest, to be their mediator between the Lord and them. He was the one who was to bear their guilt before the Lord. He was the one who was to bring their sacrifice to the Lord. He was the one who was to burn the incense before the Lord. He was the one who was entering into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, offering atonement for their sins. That was Aaron. This was the one who enabled, allowed for them, for the Israel to have an abiding, continuing relationship with God without perishing and dying because of God's wrath. It reminds us of Jesus' role, of course, we know. For Jesus' life and death would make it possible for us to continue to have an abiding, continuing relationship with God the Father, though we are sinners. Though Aaron was the high priest, we, we have learned that he too was not sinless. Though he, was, he would wear a, uh, a, a turban which with the plate that was on his head that would say, holy to the Lord. And yes, he was holy and set apart to the Lord, but he was not holy, holy, holy like the Lord. He was not without sin. We, we see the record of it in, in, uh, in uh, the, the books of the law. If you recall, it was he who made the golden calf at the request of the nation in Exodus. It was he and Miriam that complained against Moses' leadership. And it was he, along with Moses, who failed to treat God as holy, not believing his word. And for his failure, he died without seeing the promised land. And Aaron reminds us of our religious leaders, the people who point us to the Lord, Our pastors, our, our counselors, our, our teachers, they all play an important role in our lives, do they not? And we're grateful for them all. 
We're grateful for those who have taught us and discipled us as, as, and led us and pointed us to Jesus. And God has used them. Especially when we're young. But eventually we realize it. But our leaders are not our Savior. Our leaders are not the one whom we put our faith in or trust in. Our faith must always be in our Lord. Every one of us is unholy, sinful. God alone is holy. So let us learn to trust in him alone, his word alone, throughout our lives while we sojourn on earth until we get to the promised land. Well, these five events, the death of Miriam, the condemnation to death of Moses, the death of Aaron, along with the, um, the sin of the congregation and the, the rejection, of, the rejection of, of Edom, all of these remind Israel of how these, area, these people and these uh, uh, groups that they would, that they would oftentimes be tend- have a tendency to trust in or to look to for help or for guidance. And they all have a role, and God gives them in our lives. But ultimately, we need the people of God need to remember that when all these are taken away, when they are not there, when they fail, when they follow, when they fail, fall away, or fly away in death, our dwelling place is still the Lord, the one who is with us, our home, our, our the one whom we trust is still the Lord. The second generation of Israelites faced in that 40th year a significant transition. One moment they are led by Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, and the next moment they are all swept away. All their parents are gone, and their uncles and aunties are gone. Their familiar leaders are gone. Their distant relatives, the Edomites, act like enemies. And what's more, their sin persists still prone to sin and grumbling in the wilderness. What can they do? Where can they turn? How would they enter the promised land? Well, to be sure, as Moses writes in his psalm, they can turn to the one who has been with them the whole time, the one who has been their dwelling place, even as they have sojourned on earth. The one who is the faithful one who has provided for them and protected them from harm. The Lord, their God, their rock and their refuge. Their shelter and shadow. If they are to enter the promised land, they must believe in him. They must trust in him. They must depend upon him. They must look to him and him alone. For all others will fail. All others must fly away but never the Lord our God. He is our dwelling place. He is our refuge. He is our home in all generations. And Numbers is a book for every generation, including our own. It is a book for us at Bible today. And if we have eyes to look, our first generation is getting a little older. A little older. 
And those of you that are the next generation, if you have eyes to see, don't expect our first generation to keep on working for the next 20 years. Be prepared even now to start preparing and start learning to, to look to the one who will lead us into uh, throughout the rest of our sojourn here on earth. Those of you who are most likely, those of you who are probably, uh, well, let's say, well, I was going to say 20 or under, but I don't know if there's too many of you in this. Let's say 40 or under. Okay, 40 or under. 40 or under. Okay, let's see 40 or under. You're going to see a whole host of us die before your time here on earth comes to an end. You're going to see me die. As, I've been, as you, you ever get talked to me about death, I see the end more clearly than I see the beginning. These uncles and aunties, our elders, our leaders, the, people, the, the leading women of our church, these people who have led us, guided us, shepherded us, they will pass away. And you older saints, you've seen that pre- the generation before pass away. And what inevitably must happen is this time of transition when no longer do we look to our spiritual parents, but we must look to the one whom they point to, to the Lord our God. As the Bible, next generation, the time is now. The time is now. It is your turn to step up, to turn your eyes from those ones who have led you, guided you, and look to the one who is our dwelling place in all generations. And he will lead you to the promised land, to the end of the journey, to our dwelling place with him forever. Questions for you to think about as we end. Just discussion questions you can ask yourself. How does the truth that the Lord is our dwelling place affect how you live here on earth today? And when others around you fail or, or sin, in sin or die, how, how are you believing and trusting in the Lord? And to whom are you looking to guide and lead you to your eternal home? With these, uh, let's, uh, let's pray. And as uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word reminds us of uh, the inevitably of death. The passing away of our, of our leaders, significant others, parents counselors, disciples. Father, we know that in your great plan, you have given them to us so that we would look to you. We would look to you always, that we believe in you always and trust in you alone. Help us to do that, Father. Be our only hope, be our only object of faith and no one else and no one other so that when others fail or when others die, our faith will not be shaken because we know that this is not that though we lose many things here on this life, this, is, this, is not, this life is not what matters. It will come to an end. And what matters is our relationship with you and knowing that we will spend the rest of our existence with you, our home, our dwelling place, our refuge. Father, we praise you. Thank you for your word. And help us to keep believing in you always as we sojourn here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.